following is a message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit trinitygracesa.org. And now if you've got a Bible, you'll want to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The passage is also printed for you in your order of worship. It's Easter morning. And while it's true that every Sunday we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, this Sunday, the one that falls in line with Christ's historic resurrection from the dead is special. It's often been called the Sunday of Sundays, where we get the chance to turn our attention in a special way to what the resurrected Lord, uh, for, to what the resurrection of our Lord and Savior means for our lives in this world. This past week, one of my children asked, what are you preaching on for Easter? Those are the kind of questions I get asked at home. And I told them I was going to preach on a passage from 1 Corinthians, to which they responded, 1 Corinthians? There's nothing about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians. And I laughed and had them go read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But I can understand that response. An epistle isn't the usual Easter sermon text. Normally on Easter, we hear an account from the Gospels. We turn our attention to one of the eyewitness accounts from Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. It's the Gospel writers that share the up-close personal details of the historical resurrection event. But in 1 Corinthians, Paul picks up on the resurrection of Jesus and an extended reflection. In the passage we're about to read, Paul is writing to first century Christians brand new followers of Jesus who live in a big cosmopolitan port city, a city that was formed by paganism and the worship of lots of different gods. And while the Corinthians worshipped many gods, they had never heard of a God who came to die for his people until, that is, Paul came to their city with that message. And this message would have been hard for them to wrap their minds around. But it would have been even harder for them to wrap their minds around the fact that this God who died on a cross rose from the dead three days later. And Paul wants to help them work out the implications of this good news. And so Paul sends them an extended reflection on the resurrection. It's the longest chapter Paul writes in his letter. And he waits until the final part of his letter to spend so much time encouraging these new believers with the truth and implications of the resurrection. It's the last thing they hear. It's the thing that hangs in their minds. And as you might expect from such a brilliant mind, Paul engages in a lot of logic exercise as he writes about the resurrection. He engages in a kind of logic exercise. And we pick up in the middle of this exercise, we pick up in the middle of his reflection with verse 16. You follow along as I read. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. 
Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Well, this is God's word. He gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. I ran across a blog this past week written by a woman named Angelie. And she writes a blog that recounts her religious journey and how she finally came to place her faith in Jesus as her Lord and Savior. In the blog post I read, she recounted how she grew up. She was born and raised as a Hindu. She was following the Hindu religion. And as she began to explore different world religions, it led her to the Baha'i faith for five years until she finally began exploring Christianity and became a Christian. And in the blog post I read, she wrote about her initial impressions of Christians and the Christian faith. And I found it to be so interesting, especially as we reflect on the resurrection of Jesus today. This is how Angelie processed the claims of Christianity before she eventually came to place her faith in Jesus. This is what she writes. Christians claimed that Jesus was God, was the Son of God, and all this stuff about a trinity which really I had no idea what they were talking about. They claimed this resurrection, which made no sense to me. Not that I didn't believe Jesus couldn't rise from the dead if he were God, but I had no idea what possible relevance that could have since I didn't know or understand about the fall, sin, the final resurrection. I assumed these were all myths with no more relevant deep meaning than a fairy tale, except maybe metaphorical spiritual meanings. I wasn't even interested because I never understood what importance that event should have to me. No Christian had ever explained that to me. They just say crazy stuff like, I've been washed in the blood of the lamb and now I'm saved. Jesus died for your sins. Don't you want to be saved? Then they paint portraits of hell. It all made zero sense to me. Just as though someone said to me, my red balloon popped and then candy canes fell out of the sky Your rabbit is winking at me. Doesn't all this make you want to buy a new Nissan? I'm not exaggerating. This nutshell gospel message makes absolutely no sense to a non-Christian. No real meaningful sense anyway. You just have no idea what they're so excited about. So Jesus rose from the dead. Big whoop. So what? Good for him. But so what? I love her honesty. And I think we can understand and even appreciate her frustrations in some ways. In fact, the early Christians that Paul writes to in 1 Corinthians were also struggling with the meaning and the implications of Christ's resurrection. They were working out their so what questions in a sense when it came to the resurrection. And Paul takes the time to write to them. And it's interesting that he's not angry that they don't get it. He's not impatient that they haven't worked out all the implications of the resurrection yet. And we see him write to these believers to explain why the resurrection of Jesus matters. He answers their so what questions. And it's not unusual for us to have the same questions from time to time. It's not uncommon to ask the question, how does the resurrection of Jesus make a difference in my life? How does it make a difference in the world? As we live our lives in this fallen world, experiencing relational tensions and besetting sins and difficult children and insecurity about our jobs and discouraging news from all over the world, 
it makes sense that we too would look at the resurrection of Jesus and ask, so what? And this morning, as we reflect on these verses, our aim is to be encouraged by the hope and security that the resurrection brings. And I want us to follow Paul's logic in these 10 verses as we're guiding ourselves towards that hope and security. In our passage, we see Paul conduct a thought experiment. First, what we see him do is explore what it would mean if Jesus was not raised from the dead. And then he pivots and he explores what it means for Christians if Jesus was raised from the dead. And we're going to look at this passage under those two headings. What if Jesus wasn't raised? And what does it mean if Jesus was raised? First, let's spend a few minutes following Paul's logic as he explores where no resurrection leaves us. For anyone that's read the New Testament, it doesn't come as a surprise to be told that Paul was a great mind. He was highly educated. And he used his mind often to make logical arguments in the letters that he wrote to the churches throughout the Mediterranean region. We see Paul engage in a logical argument as we pick up here in verse 16 of our passage. Paul's appealing to the Corinthians' logic as he uses if-then arguments to invite these believers to consider what it means if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead and to face the consequences of rejecting the resurrection. He begins this kind of logical argumentation back in verse 12, and we pick up in verse 16 where he says that if the dead aren't raised, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you're still captive to sin. And what's more, those believers who've fallen asleep or who have died, they're gone forever. And he continues in verse 19 by saying, If Jesus only gives us hope in this short life and no hope for eternal life, then we're of all people to be most pitied. In other words, if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, then you and I are playing the role of fools. What we see in these verses is Paul following through on a thought exercise with the Corinthians. He's basically asking them to imagine what life would look like if the resurrection of Jesus weren't true. What would life be like without hope of the resurrection? And it's worth stepping back to recognize that this is an apostle asking these questions. I mean, he is one who saw Jesus with his own eyes on the road to Damascus. You can read about that story back in Acts chapter 9. Paul is one who has risked his life, given all of his energy, spent all of his resources traveling the known world so that people might hear and believe the message of Christ's resurrection. It's an understatement to say that Paul is personally invested in this message. And here we find him inviting these Corinthians to consider what it means if they were to strip the resurrection from the message of Christianity. Paul wants them to understand that if the resurrection didn't happen, then all of what Christ taught is completely absurd. If the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, you're still dead in your sin. If the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, then you have no real hope of any ultimate goodness, no hope of renewal and restoration. A few verses later in this passage, Paul says that if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, we might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. In other words, we might as well live like we want and suck all the joy out of life right now because there is no future that's worth holding on to. 
Without the resurrection, suffering makes absolutely no sense. And in this passage, Paul invites us to make believe and envision what life would look like without the resurrection of Jesus. The Bible tells us that the resurrection is the seal of victory. It's the ultimate validation of Christ's perfect life and sacrificial death. If Jesus is still in the tomb, none of what he said and did really matters much. I like how Tim Keller put it when he said this, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. And Paul wants us to consider what it would mean for us to reject the resurrection of Jesus. He wants us to take a look at how bleak life would be if Jesus were not raised from the dead. But then he pivots in verse 20. He stops the make-believe exercise and gets back to reality, reminding us that in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. And now he draws out some implications of that resurrection that give us great hope and security. So now let's turn and look at Paul as he leads us to reflect on the reality of Christ's resurrection. Often when Paul really wants to highlight the importance of something in his letters, he resorts to using metaphors. And we see him using a metaphor as he talks about the resurrection of Jesus in verse 20 through 26. What we see him do is use the image of first fruits as he describes the importance of Jesus' resurrection. And it's unusual language for us, this language of first fruits, but it's an image that would have been familiar to a group of people who were familiar with agriculture and the way of harvesting crops. What are the first fruits that Paul references in verse 20 and 23 of our passage? Well, the first fruits were the crops that sprouted and were collected first during the harvest season. See, the first crops that a farmer collects at the beginning of the harvest season give him confidence that there's more crops to come. The small harvest of the first fruits is a guarantee that the full harvest is about to show up. The first fruits or a down payment are a guarantee in a sense, assuring us that much more fruit is on the way. The first fruits make what's coming in the future visible now. And Paul likens the resurrection of Jesus to first fruits. In verse 20, he says that Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or those who have died. And he uses the language of first fruits again in verse 23, where he says, We will one day experience resurrection, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Jesus' resurrection makes God's promises visible. Christ's resurrection gives us confidence that there is more resurrection, more life from death to come. Christ's resurrection is a down payment or a guarantee. It's God's pledge to you, assuring you of what the future holds, which is life after death, which is Jesus destroying every rule, every authority, and every power that harms us so that his people might experience freedom and joy and life. That's our future hope and security if we believe in him this morning. Because Jesus has defeated our last enemy, because he has declared victory over death itself, we can be assured that our future, at least in an ultimate sense, is one characterized by hope and joy and delight. 
That's our future guaranteed by Christ's resurrection. Yet we still live in the midst of a fallen world. A world characterized by sin and sadness. One characterized by grief and misery. We still see friends get sick and die. We still have to visit the cancer floor of the hospital. We still experience deep loneliness and relational strain. We still find lust and greed and anger bubbling up in our hearts. And the question that Paul is implicitly asking through this passage is, do you want more or less of that? As we look around at the sin and brokenness of our lives in this world, because of the resurrection of Jesus, we can remain hopeful that one day all sin and all evil and all brokenness that we experience will be set right that all things will one day be renewed and restored. A few years back, I read a book entitled Quiet by Susan Cain, and it's a book on the topic of introverts and their place in the world. Introverts like me, who, by the way, are living their best life now with all this social isolation. But at the end of her book, she interviews a man named David Weiss. And Weiss is a musician. He's a drummer. He's a music journalist. And he's really looked up to in the music community. He lives in New York City. He's married with kids. And he talks in the book about how he thinks New York City is the most interesting place in the world. And in the interview with Kane, he recounts his middle school years, describing them as lonely and socially difficult. He said, people would tell me, these are the best years of your life. I thought, I hope not. I hated school. I remember thinking, I got to get out of here. I was in sixth grade when Revenge of the Nerds came out, and it looked like I stepped out of the cast. Well, Weiss started playing the drums at an early age. He gets his life on track, and he becomes a successful musician. Here's what he says when he reflects back on his middle school self in the book. He says, I feel like I'm in touch with that person today. Whenever I'm doing something that I think is cool, like if I'm in New York City with a room full of people interviewing Alicia Keys or something, I send a message back to that young boy and let him know that everything turned out okay. I feel like when I was nine, I was receiving that signal from the future, which gave me the strength to hang in there. Now, I don't think what Weiss is talking about is actually possible, but doesn't that idea kind of grab you a little? What if you could send something back to insecure, weak you, and say it's going to be okay? What if you could know what the future holds and live today in light of that promised future? Well, the Bible actually makes that possible. We can read about the future that we're promised. We can read about where we're heading as we follow God's story. So go with me where we get a glimpse of what our future holds because of Christ's resurrection and his victory over death. Our future is painted for us as we see it in Revelation chapter 21 where it says this, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That's our future. That's where we're heading. Now take that vision of our future and come back to 25-year-old or 45-year-old or 80-year-old you 
with all of your current fears and concerns and anxieties and talk to yourself in your present situation. Encourage yourself with the future that Jesus has secured for you by your, his resurrection. Remind yourself that Jesus came to destroy death and addiction and loneliness and sadness and sin. And one day, you and I are going to experience the full harvest of God's promises to us. Jesus rose from death to life. And if we place our faith in him, we will too. That's what we celebrate on this Easter Sunday. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for the way that you have come to defeat sin, the spiritual forces of darkness, and death itself for us. We are thankful for the way that you have secured for us a future, a future characterized by joy and renewal and wholeness. And we pray that as we look forward to that day, as we even get small tastes of it now, that we might live our lives in light of that glorious day when you will return and make all things new because you've been raised from the dead. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.